0: Welcome to the Park Road podcast for September 1st, 2019. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. The title of his sermon today is Building Community.
1: Oh, that was beautiful, Margie. Sixteen years ago, I was on a rattle trap of a van. We were going from Carlos Rojas back to the little church where we were spending the night. Carlos Rojas is our our partner church in uh, central Cuba. And uh, we were somewhere between Carlos Rojas and Cardenas, and I heard this voice in the dark behind me, and it was Aaron Pettit, Aaron Rumble now singing. And um, I fell in love with her voice, and most of the time when Erin sings, she just stands up and starts singing unaccompanied, and it is beautiful, so thank you. And appropriate for today, they will know we are Christians by our love. I've told this story before, so if you've heard it, my apologies, but uh, it bears repeating as we begin today's sermon When Amy and I were in Birmingham, I had developed a close relationship with Dr. William E. Hull, then the provost of Samford University, and also a member of the church staff I served in Birmingham. Bill was a world-class scholar. He's the only pastor or teacher I have known who would go to the pulpit or to the lectern carrying only his Greek New Testament, and he would translate on the fly. He was the author of a number of books and articles in scholarly publications, One of the books that Bill was writing as we were coming to Charlotte was a book on the art of preaching. Now, Bill was not a fan of the lectionary. He believed in what was called strategic preaching. I said Bill was a first-rate scholar, so he had pointed out to me that the lectionary, if you're not familiar with the lectionary, the lectionary divides uh, 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 Scripture into a three-year cycle. So we're in year C, now finishing up year C. Uh, the the year, the Christian year begins at, at Advent, uh, and so the, the lectionary follows the, a three-year cycle of the Christian year and divides the text, uh, four texts for each Sunday, a gospel text, another New Testament text, a psalm reading, and another Old Testament text. Um, and in a, th- a course of a three-year cycle, you cover kind of the waterfront of Scripture, um, And many more liturgical churches use the lectionary to guide their preaching and their worship. Um, Bill was not a fan of the lectionary. He had pointed out to me that the lectionary only utilizes 11.4% of the text of the Old Testament. Now, with a little playful jab, I asked Bill in response how many pastors he thought would actually utilize more than 11.4% of Old Testament text if left to their own devices. I assume that if you cover 11% of the, of the Old Testament in a three-year cycle, you're doing pretty well, you know. Bill believed pastors should be strategic in their preaching, attentive to issues in their congregation and in the world, and that they should deliver sermons finely tuned to the issues of that day. He was critical of usil- u- utilizing a source of scripture that had been established by some remote committee far removed from any specific Uh, Congregation. In one chapter of his book, Bill invited me to write a defense of lectionary preaching, knowing that as a general rule, Amy and I follow the lectionary. Part of what I said was that I believe the lectionary keeps pastors from just turning to their favorite text over and over, just preaching their own soapboxes. And I reflected that in my own experience, using the lectionary had hardly kept me from being strategic. I never go to a sermon, even a lectionary-based sermon, unaware of the issues of the day, either across the world or the nation or my congregation. But I use the lectionary, the use of the lectionary had encouraged me to look with fresh eyes at a text to see what it might be saying uniquely, specifically to the strategic situation of my congregation." Time and again, this has proven true to me. I've gone to the lectionary. Somebody else chose that text years ago. The Revised Common Lectionary Committee chose the text that I would be preaching years ago. And I come to the text today, and lo and behold, it's exactly what we need to hear for today. So this weekend, the theme for our church-wide retreat has been building community with an emphasis on unity, Obviously, the framers of the Revised Common Lectionary, devising that scripture strategy years ago, had no idea that a small congregation in Charlotte would be on retreat this weekend thinking about how to build community. They had no way to know that when they chose a passage from Hebrews that begins with the words, let mutual love continue. Need I say more? If Bill Hull were alive today, I would be tempted to send him a letter and say, look, Bill, it happened again. The lectionary was just right for my strategic preaching. Amy says the dumbest thing I've ever done is to send a couple of my sermons to Bill Hull and ask him to critique them. Um, I've done that a couple times before Bill died. I sent him a couple sermons, and I would, about a week later, I'd get back like a four-page, single-space typed letter, and in the first paragraph, he'd be very nice. That was very nice for us. Now, let me tell you how it could have been better for the next three and a half pages. How do you build community? Let mutual love continue. In a day filled with anger and distrust, how do we heal the wounds of division and discord? How do you build community? Let mutual love continue. When people seem so frantically busy they cannot get their priorities together, what advice might we offer? How do you build community? Let mutual love continue. Well, that's probably all we need to say today. Let mutual love continue. But we could further exegete the text in this way. Let is really a prayer, isn't it? May it be that mutual love continues. I hope and pray that mutual love will continue. Like using the word amen, which means may it be so. The word amen is itself a prayer. Whatever we pray, amen. May it be so that what we've prayed for would actually come to be. So in this text, we have an affirmation of mutual love with a beseeching supplication. God, let it be that our mutual love would continue. So we begin with prayer, always the right place. And then we get to the heart of the matter, mutual love. Now, this really seems redundant, doesn't it? Mutual love. Is there any other kind of love? If it's not mutual, could you actually call it love? Any self-interested love, any conditional offering, any action that is not as beneficial to the receiver as it is to the giver could not truly be called love, could it? So maybe the word mutual is not so much an adjective modifying or delineating the kind of love we should offer as much as it is just a kind of expletive. An extra word to give emphasis, a redundancy offered for emphasis. Mutual love, you know, real love, true love, love that is love, love. Let that continue. And then we have this curious concluding word, continue. There's an implication in that word. In order to continue something, that thing has to be present to begin with. I've heard some of my African-American colleagues speak of our exhortations to racial reconciliation with a patient but bitter critique. To reconcile, reconcile, they challenge, one must have been reconciled. I know that's not a word, but you understand conciliation. To be reconciled, we have to have been reconciled to begin with. We have to have been together to begin with. No, it's a harsh acknowledgement, and one that makes me a bit uneasy when I hear it, though I'm really in no place to disagree. Maybe there never has been true conciliation between blacks and whites in this country. How can we hope to reconcile? Have we ever been one? To reconcile, we must have been conciled Together And to continue in mutual love, we must be able to call on a history of that kind of love. Runners speak of an aerobic history. There is a strength that comes from years of fitness. A strength that builds on itself once there is a history of running. And there is a strength that comes from living and working and worshiping together. Do we have a history of mutual love can we continue in that kind of love i think we can in this congregation i believe there is a history of care and support of mutual love within our congregation but it's not something we can take for granted love takes constant work and those who are new to the church or new new to this church or new to church itself You can bring to us your own history of mutual love, strengthening our love with your own experience of kinship and caring, Christ-like affection one for another. How do we build community? Let mutual love continue. Now, as I think about community, I think we ought to acknowledge a reality That speaking of church as community is interesting and challenging in our context. For the early church of Jesus Christ, community was necessity. Just given the socioeconomic situation of many of those first members, they needed community literally to survive. And as a persecuted minority, originally outcast of Judaism, not to mention Rome, That true experience of persecution further forced them together. Church as community was a necessity for survival. We continue to speak of church as community. Amy and I use the phrase community of faith over and again. It's our favorite way to refer to our congregation, a community of faith. But are we really a community? Hardly anyone here actually needs this community literally to survive. I've gone through our congregation. I can hardly think of anyone who needs this community literally to survive day in and day out. Almost everyone in our congregation is self-sufficient, if not affluent. We live in a culture that has been nominally Christian for 250 years, a culture that has mostly propped up the church by an implicit bias for Christian practice, Christian themes, Christian theology. Don't let anyone tell you that the Christian church is under siege in this country. There is no persecution of the majority of this country. As to our specific community, While we are small enough that everyone can know each other, if you want to make that effort, the honest truth is that we don't know each other. Do we? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to shame anyone or rebuke anyone, make anybody feel guilty. I just want to name the honest reality. Even though we are a small enough congregation that we can know everybody if we want to, very few of you know everyone in this congregation. One thing that Amy and I love about being the pastor of this church is that we can and do know everyone. Now, we don't know everyone as well as we should, but we know everyone. It's a wonderful size congregation that we can feel like we are pastors to everyone here, that there is a community here. But when I think about our congregation, I'm not sure that can be said of very many people. How many people in this congregation do you know well enough to feel like you are part of their community. For the most part, we come together on Sundays, maybe come together for the occasional group activity, but few of us know each other well enough to call ourselves community. Beyond the association of the name on the sign out front, how much are we really a community? And what does the word community mean to you? Is that what you want from church? It's an interesting Aside here, what do you want from church? What do people want? Do people want community? We had some conversation about this in our retreat. Um, We're living in a day where people are not joiners of anything. Our retreat leader started the session Friday night by referring to that Robert Putnam book that's now 30 years old. It's called Bowling Alone. Bowling leagues are down by 70%. It's not that people don't bowl anymore. They just don't join leagues to bowl anymore. It's not that we don't have wonderful participation in our congregation anymore, but 25 to 30% of our worshiping congregation every Sunday is not a member of this congregation. People don't join anymore. They bowl alone. What do you want from church? Do you want community? Are you involved? Do you know one another? Are you connected? We've had an emphasis recently on our connection groups, trying to get folks involved so you can be connected, so you can know someone, so if you have trouble, somebody else will know about it, so that your ministers will know about it, so we can follow up and, and, and uh, be community to one another. Are you connected? If you needed help, could you reach out to someone here for that help? If someone needed you, could they actually call on you for a helping hand? Who knows your name? Anybody have your phone number? Are we really a community? How do we let mutual love continue if we're really not a community to begin with? And there's another aspect of community that we're always in danger of losing when religion is so comfortably accommodated to the culture as Christianity is to the American mythology. What does it mean to be Christian in a culture that is nominally Christian. You know, we still sort of honor Sunday as the Sabbath day for everybody, even though most folks don't go to church on Sunday. Sunday is still kind of a different day. The, the government is still kind of propping up the church in ways like that. What does it mean to be Christian in this culture? Does it just mean being nice? You know, act Christian. Be nice. Is that what Christian means? For many Christians today... The faith is inseparable from participation in a particular political party. Go to most Baptist pastors in the country today and ask them if you can be a Democrat and a Christian and they will scoff at you. Is that what it means to be Christian? Does it just mean that you go to church or put a few dollars in the plate? Is it only a spiritual affirmation, some abstract theological speculation? When you die, if you're Christian, you get to go to heaven. What does it mean to be Christian in this culture? It is clear from reading the New Testament in context that for the first followers, to belong to Jesus meant more than any of those things. It meant establishing an identity with his way. With a set of values that were easily identifiable and often uncomfortably opposed to the values of the dominant culture. Scripture speaks of having the mind of Christ. For the early church to claim the name of Christ was to make a distinctively political comment. The phrase, Caesar is Lord, was known in that part of the ancient world. Roman citizens and people controlled by Roman occupation were expected to pledge their loyalty to Caesar as to a god. So the original confession of Christian faith, which was offered as a baptismal affirmation, when someone came to be baptized, the minister or the priest would say, confess your faith, and the candidate would say, Jesus is Lord. And to say Jesus is Lord meant Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It was a specifically, decisively political statement, a dangerous, daring affirmation in the face of Roman occupation. But in a culture that has been nominally Christian, maybe minimally Christian, superficially Christian for so long, what does it even mean to say Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord and Donald Trump is not? Or the Democratic Party is not? Or capitalism is not? Jesus is Lord and the United States is not? Who or what defines the values of this community of faith? Is it the values of Jesus or is it some larger part of the culture? What sets us apart Anything? I read years ago a pastor who said he was raised in this country, patriotic and Christian, raised to believe that there was nothing, that that, that to be a good Christian was to be a good American. To be a good American was to be a good Christian. They were the same thing. And he said, I've grown to realize they are not the same thing. If we don't have a set of values that distinguish us from the culture, that set us apart, can we say that we are a people, a community? Once a group of people have become a Christian community, Scripture says there are certain values, actions, attitudes that will prevail based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. The rest of today's text identifies a number of those commitments, and I have only a chance to literally mention them in passing. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The welcome of the stranger is a consistent call throughout the Old and the New Testament. The stranger, the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant, all those words mean the same thing. Our call is to welcome. Remember. What we remember, how we remember, whom we remember are all conditioned by our faithfulness. Tell me what you remember, someone has said, and I will tell you who you are. Our memory, the act of remembrance, is important. And as we remember those who are in prison, Scripture says, we are taught to remember them as though you were in prison with them. Sympathy is not enough for Christian conviction. We are called to the deeper commitment of empathy. Putting ourselves in the place of the immigrant, the outcast, the least of these, the imprisoned ones. Let marriage be held in honor. Our most intimate relationships should be marked by integrity and faithfulness. They should be lived in such a way that others hold our marriages and the institution itself in honor. Keep your lives free from the love of money. We could spend a lot of time here, couldn't we? In this culture, the love of money Learn the discipline of contentment. It's not what you have, it's who you are that gives meaning to life. In the good times and the bad, whether feast or famine, God is with us. Learn to be content. Say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Faith is confident trust. It's not a, tenet, uh, not a set of beliefs that we hold between our ears. Learn to trust. Learn to live as faith by trust. What, we have to, what do we have to fear if God is on our side? Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by regulations. Religion is about rules. Faith is gratitude and grace. Don't worry about the rules. As St. Augustine once said, love God and do as you will. In other words, if we actually love God, we can do anything we want to do because what, because what we want to do is what the world actually needs us to do. Don't worry about religious rules. Just be faithful. Here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. While the faith of Jesus is concerned about how we live in the here and now, faith is always future-looking. Always, uh, our lives should always be filled with hope for a new and better day. Until the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, we must always be looking for and working to build that city that is to come. Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Worship is good for the human spirit. I believe that. Worship is born in humility and issues forth in responses of gratitude, small and large, in random acts of kindness that turn out not to be so random after all. We love because God first loved us. Worship directs our focus like a compass, marking our orientation and guiding our living. And finally, a word to the weary. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. I said a word to the weary. Do not neglect to continue to do good and to share what you have. Seems to me that there can be no compassion fatigue in the life of faith. We must persevere. Do not grow weary in doing what is right. And it is always right to share what we have. To the one whom much is given, much more will be required. So there it is. It's a prayer for community dear God let our mutual love continue and it's what might be taken as a summary of the ethic of that community and if that ethic that I have just repeated to you those lines if that sounds burdensome heavy if the life of faith living out the love of God following the way of Jesus sounds like a load to bear I think you've probably heard it correctly So out of the weight of our calling comes the grace of community. It is not mine to do alone. It is not your burden to carry alone. God gives us to one another. Christian life is lived in community with one another and with God. If it is not part of your understanding of faith, I'm not here to, ch- to chastise you. I'm not here to rebuke you, but let me be here to challenge you. If it's not part of your understanding of faith, let me encourage you to deepen your commitment. Human beings need community, real community, people together, people who can reach out and touch one another, love one another, care for one another. Let me challenge you to be community. You can find that community here at Park Road, and with your help, we can better offer community to the lost and the least and the lonely out there beyond our walls. How do we build community? Let mutual love continue. May it be so. Let us pray.